0: Before we begin today, quick shout out to Douglas Ryan, who left a review on iTunes. Thank you for the big review. Quote, Come and Take It covers Texas history in all its glory and shame without apology. Come and Take It podcast delivers weekly reminders about why Texas is the best territory, nation, state, and attitude in the world. As a fifth-generation Texan who moved away and misses home, I love the connection it provides. This podcast joins a long list as one of the best things about Texas. So thank you very much, Douglas, for this wonderful review. If you would just sit down and shut up and listen to me for more than two minutes and not have a temper <laughs> tantrum, I will take you to the promised lands. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zulkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Ostrom. Today we're joined by our special guest, Professor James Early of San Jacinto College. Welcome, James. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. This week we begin a multi-part series examining in more depth some of the many stories of Texas in the Civil War. Today we're talking about the chain of events that led to Texas' secession from the Union. But
1: first, who's your all-time favorite Houston Astro? Well, I will go first. I have been... Watching the Astros since I was a little kid, 1975, so over 40 years. Needless to say, this has been a good year. (laughs) First time ever to win the World Series. And it's really hard to pick a favorite, but I'm going to have to go with a current Astro, Jose Altuve. And he is uh, just an amazing hitting machine, the likes of which the Astros have never had before. Three batting titles out of the last four years. Uh, steals bases. He does it all. He's what they call a five-tool player. Hits for power, hits for uh, average. He's fast. He's a great fielder. He can throw. And so I got to go with Altuve.
2: <laughs> well, uh, I'm a Rangers fan. So <laughs> the uh, the only Astro that I know about besides the, you know, the 80s and 90s, you know, Berkman and Biggio and those guys uh, is the great the greatest pitcher of all time, Nolan Ryan. Uh, and I believe he got one of his no hitters in Houston. Yes. Uh, never, won pen- yeah. never won a six. Yeah. Never want to pen it. Um, but I do have fond memories of seeing Nolan in that, that awesome uniform, uh, the day uniform. And, but my fonder memories are of course of Nolan with two no hitters in the, in the Rangers and beating the crud out of uh, what's his name? Uh,
1: Uh, Robin Ventura
2: yeah, beating the crap out of Robin Ventura so fellow Texan Robin Ventura at that Mm. so those are my fond memories so Nolan Ryan, I'm going to pick Nolan Ryan great astro, great ranger, great Texan great beef man too Well, I'm going to make this real easy
0: the number one astro that everyone should cheer for is Orbit the mascot because (laughs) that that mascot is bonkers awesome you just take one look and you're like that thing looks like a space alien Well, it's because he is a space haven. We're the Astros. Go, Astros, go! He's a fun dude. He's a fun guy. He's fun. He's funny. Great mascot. Yep.
3: Well, um, I grew up with the Astros as well, and uh, once upon a time when I was a kid, uh, my favorite Astro was J.R. Richard when I was a young lad, uh, the towering pitcher. Um, But then as I got older, uh, Craig Biggio uh, was probably my favorite for a long time, Uh, just I never had seen anybody that played baseball as hard as he did and as well as he did. Um, I was going to say Jose Altuve and before James stole it. So uh, I'll just settle with my backup, which is uh, going to be George Springer. Um, I've watched him since before he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And uh, I thought he was a good choice when they picked him. And he has proved his value to the team. And he just seems like a, a nice young man overall.
1: He's a delightful lad. Yes, he is, sir.
0: (laughs) So, uh, well, welcome to the podcast, James. Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what drew you to our podcast and love of history.
1: Well, I have a lifelong love of history. I was talking to you all offline earlier. My undergraduate degree is actually in electrical engineering, but I took as much history as I could. And I actually thought about changing my major to history, but I stuck it out and I ended up going back uh, to get a master's to a seminary actually in Texas at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth and uh, got a master's there, master in theology. And then I uh, spent some time overseas and came back. And I a few years ago, I said, you know, I love history so much and I read so much, I might as well just get some credit for it. So I en- enrolled in the uh, master's program at Sam Houston State, which is an all-online program. It's a wonderful program for anybody out there that wants to get a master's in history, and and then as soon as I graduated, I started teaching uh, part-time. I, I, I have a full-time job. I work for the Pasadena School District uh, as an administrator, but I uh, really have enjoyed uh, teaching history, and I, I listen to several history podcasts, and y'all's is one I found really early. I've always, you know, I grew up in Texas, lived here most of my life. We moved here when I was uh, about four, so you know the old saying about how I wasn't born in Texas, but I got here as fast as I could. <laughs> uh, so I've, I've been living in the state mostly since I was about four, so over 40 years. And uh, just love y'all's podcast. I've always enjoyed it. A, few, a couple years ago, about a year and a half actually, I started a Facebook group called American History Fanatics. And about, I guess about six months ago, Sean found his way into the group and we started communicating a little bit here and there, and he invited me to come on the podcast. And so I did. And and my, uh, probably the one area of uh, U.S. history that I know the most about is the Civil War. So I thought, well, let's do some more on the Civil War in Texas. I know you guys have done a few things on it, but I thought maybe we could uh, look at some of the things that happened in Texas during the Civil War in a little bit more detail. Well, let's start by going back to the mid-1850s. This was just around a decade after Texas joined the United States following its period as an independent republic. The annexation of Texas, the acquisition of Mexico's northern territories, and the addition of the Oregon Territory doubled the size of the United States in just three short years and radically altered the political status quo that had existed since the Compromise of 1820 set a northern limit on the expansion of slavery. Political tensions grew as compromise after compromise failed to either maintain the status quo or to satisfy the pro- and anti-slavery factions in the country. The decade saw steadily increasing polarity between the two sides, with the center becoming smaller and smaller.
2: Now, in common with other slave states, many Texans' loyalty to the federal government started to wane and kind of diminish, while interest in seceding from the Union increased. One of the notable exceptions, though, was the legendary military hero, our favorite Texan, the former president of the Republic of Texas and, at the time, the current United States senator for Texas, Sam Houston. Now, despite his love for his adopted home state, Houston felt that secession was at best madness and, at worst, treason. And to be fair, he blamed extremists on both sides, saying, quote, Whatever is calculated to weaken or impair the strength of the Union, whether originating at the north or the south, Whether arising from the incendiary violence of abolitionists or the coalition of nullifiers, will never meet with my unqualified approval. In 1854, Houston became one of only two Southern senators to oppose the Kansas Nebraska Act. This is an act that would have opened all the federal territories to the possibility of having slavery. He issued a fiery and prescient rebuke of the act in the Senate, stating, quote, What fields of blood, what scenes of horror, what mighty cities in smoke and ruins, it is brother murdering brother. I see my beloved South go down in the unequal contest in a sea of blood and smoking ruin. In
3: 1857, while still serving in the Senate, Houston ran for governor of Texas, holding a pro-union position. His political principles cost him, and he was soundly defeated by pro-secession candidate Hardin Reynolds. The following year, in further retaliation for Houston's staunch unionism, the Texas legislature announced that they would not reappoint Houston to his Senate seat at the end of his current term. Remember, this was a period before the direct election of senators, and instead the state legislature selected them. This action was, in the words of Houston biographer James L. Haley, an unprecedented insult that led to calls in the press for his immediate resignation. Houston, of course, refused to resign. His term ended on March 4, 1859, and he returned home to begin life as a private citizen.
0: Even before the now ex-senator returned home, several of his friends encouraged him to challenge Runnels for the governorship in the upcoming 1859 election. Texas governors at the time served a two-year term, and this led to a very perpetual election cycle. Houston agreed to run, but he was somewhat reluctant to do so, that fall, Houston defeated Runnels almost as decisively as Runnels had defeated him two years earlier. Houston's victory, however, should not be viewed as a rejection of anti-Union thought. Rather, it reflected many Texans' disapproval of Runnels' failure to deal effectively with raids by Indians in the West and Mexican bandits in the South. Whatever Texans thought of Houston's politics, they knew that he knew how to deal with Indians and Mexicans. Keep them flying, boys. Uh, <laughs> Houston himself hoped that as governor he could hold back the growing tide of secession fever. However, three events occurred that were completely out of Houston's control and really made the task impossible.
1: In October 1859, radical abolitionist John Brown held an unsuccessful raid on the federal arsenal at Harpers Ferry, Virginia. Although this failed effort occurred prior to the Texas governor's election, the news that Brown had had support from northern abolitionists combined with the praise that Brown received from northern newspapers to set off Texans' tempers. Brown was executed for treason after a very public trial, but this did little to cool things down on the issue.
2: Now, the following year in Texas itself, there was a series of mysterious fires that broke out in various parts of Texas. We we actually talked about this extensively not long ago in episode 211. These fires, although probably caused by defective matches, drought conditions, and the fact that Texas is hot in the summer, were blamed on blacks and on white abolitionists, and there was terrible hysteria and violence throughout North Texas. The literal and figurative heat of both of these firestorms resulted in the heating up of the secessionist movement.
3: Finally, in November 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected president of the United States from the Republican Party. Lincoln's name didn't even appear on the presidential ballot in Texas, as he and his party were identified by the majority of Texans with the abolitionist movement. The Republicans had been founded on the principle of free soil. That means opposition to the spread of slavery. But Lincoln himself had made repeated promises not to touch slavery in the states where it already existed. Lincoln won by a plurality as the Democratic Party split into three separate parts, and Southern Democrats, led by South Carolina, quickly called for separation from the Union in order to safeguard slavery. These three events led Texans to likewise believe that their state had no future
0: in the Union. In the fall of 1860, as enthusiasm for secession was growing throughout most of Texas, Houston embarked upon a speaking tour to rally support for the Union, and convinced Texans of the folly of secession. Houston himself had been briefly courted as a candidate for the pro-compromise Constitutional Union Party and campaigned heavily for its candidate, John Bell of Tennessee. After the election, Houston continued to give speeches for several months, urgently pleading with his fellow Texans not to sever their ties with the Union. In one speech, he echoed back his earlier prophecies of disaster for the South. Some of you laugh to scorn the idea of bloodshed as the result of secession, but let me tell you what's coming. Your fathers and husbands, your sons and brothers, will be herded at the point of the bayonet. You may, after the sacrifice of countless millions of treasure and hundreds of thousands of lives, as a bare possibility, win Southern independence, but I doubt it. I tell you that while I believe with you in the doctrine of states' rights, the North is determined to preserve this union. They are not a fiery, impulsive people as you are, for they live in colder climates." But when they begin to move in a given direction, they move with the steady momentum and perseverance of a mighty avalanche.
1: And what I fear is, they will overwhelm the South. In December, South Carolina issued a formal declaration of secession, making it the first state to leave the Union. The next month, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, and Louisiana followed suit. Houston realized that Texas was likely to be next if he didn't take quick action. He decided to seek advice from the Texas Supreme Court regarding the legality of secession. Most of the justices, however, were secessionists, and, not surprisingly, they believed that secession was not unconstitutional. Surprise, surprise there. When Justice James H. Bell gave a speech in which he declared that only the Texas legislature had the authority to remove the state from the Union, Houston quickly saw a way to try and stop the madness. Now, Fortunately for Houston and his fellow
2: unionists, the legislature wasn't in session at that time. When a vocal group of enthusiastic secessionists demanded that the governor call a special session, which would then presumably take a vote on secession, Houston refused. The firebrands then sent a delegation to personally petition Houston to assemble the legislature. Of course, we know how that was going to go. Houston refused this demand, Houston refused this demand, and so the delegates immediately went to the attorney general, who published a statement calling for a special election of delegates to a secession convention. Now, understanding that he wouldn't have any sway over that convention, Houston reversed himself, and he actually tried to call the legislature into session on January 21, 1861. He addressed the body, and he tried to talk them out of leaving the union. When this failed, he issued a call to his fellow southern governors asking them to join him in convening a national convention to try and restore harmony with the North. This desperately didn't get any response, since those states that had seceded were already too far gone. But it at least stalled the secession process for about a week.
3: The Texas
2: Secession Convention
3: formally convened on January 28th to begin debating the question of whether or not Texas should exit the Union, though many rightfully figured it was a foregone conclusion. Houston avoided the convention and didn't issue any statements. The convention sent a committee of five led by John H. Reagan, who'd recently resigned his seat in Congress to return to Texas and participate, to meet with the governor. The meeting was cordial but inconclusive. Houston told Reagan that secession would be, quote, a great mistake and that our people are going to war to perpetuate slavery and the first gun fired in the war will be the knell of slavery. Despite Houston's warnings, the convention voted 166 to 7 to secede from the United States on February 1st. The question was then put to the people of Texas, who on February 23rd voted 46,129 to 14,697 in favor of secession. Most of the anti-secession votes came from the predominantly European-dominated counties in central Texas and in the northern counties along the Red River.
0: Now that the die was cast for disunion, Houston shifted his strategy, trying to get the secessionist leaders to declare Texas to return to being an independent republic, rather than to join the Confederacy. He argued that Texas had prospered before as a republic, and indicated that he believed that by staying neutral in the conflict, it would be protected by France, at least who was trying to hold on to its occupation of Mexico. This tactic failed to gain any support from the public or the legislature. On March 15th, the delegates of the secession convention swore allegiance to the Confederacy. The convention immediately sent a representative to inform Houston that he must follow suit. Houston requested and was granted time to think about his response, which was due at noon
1: the following day. After enduring an agonizing, sleepless night, Houston decided not to appear before the convention at the appointed time. In response, the convention, despite having no constitutional power to do so, Declared Houston's office to be vacant and swore in the secessionist lieutenant governor Edward Clark as the new governor. Houston replied by issuing a passionate anti-secession statement that he concluded by exclaiming, I deny the power of this constitution to speak for Texas. I think that should say convention. Let me say that again. I deny the power of this convention to speak for Texas. I protest in the name of the people of Texas against all the acts and doings of this convention, and I declare them null and void.
2: (laughs) Well, when Houston entered his office the next day, old Sam found Clark sitting behind his desk. He greeted Clark with sarcasm. Well, Governor, you are an early riser. Clark replied, yes, General. I am illustrating the old maxim, the early bird catches the worm. Houston reported, well, Governor Clark... I hope you will find an easier chair than I have found it. Houston then gathered up his belongings and he left. After he left the governor's mansion, Houston and his family spent several weeks traveling around the state, visiting friends until they finally settled in Huntsville. In
3: late March, Houston received a surprising letter from Colonel Carlos Waite, the commander of the over 3,000 federal troops still in Texas. Waite had assumed command when Brigadier General David Twiggs, the previous commander, was fired for agreeing to surrender his command to a force of 1,000 Texans. Twiggs soon became a Confederate general. In the letter, Waite offered to use his soldiers to restore Houston to power. Houston replied, Allow me, most respectfully, to decline any such assistance of the United States government and to most earnestly protest against the concentration of troops and fortifications in Texas and request that you remove all such troops out of the state at the
0: very earliest
3: day practicable.
0: Upon hearing of Houston's refusal, President Lincoln decided to try one more time to woo the ex-governor. He sent a courier to Houston with a letter offering him the rank of Major General in the Union Army, and 50,000 federal troops to use to keep Texas in the Union. Houston also declined this offer. Like the Virginian Robert E. Lee, Houston opposed secession but would not raise his hand against the people of his state. With his failure to enlist Houston to the Union cause, Lincoln ordered Colonel Waite and his command to evacuate the state. Disgusted with the secessionists who'd opted for secession and war, Houston retired to his home in Huntsville, where he led a quiet life until his death on July 26, 1863, only a few weeks after the twin disasters of the Confederate defeat at Gettysburg and Vicksburg, Houston never lived to see so many of his predictions come true for both Texas and the South. Well, that's a that's a bummer of an
2: ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a shame that's how this happened this way. So there's a couple of things I really, really want to unpack. And there's some surprising things in this story, Uh and that I that I was surprised to see some of the, some quotes I'd never actually seen. So the one thing I wanted to ask uh, James is what really was the impact of the Mexican War and Texas annexation in the United States in the issue of slavery?
1: It was a huge impact. It cannot be uh, overemphasized because the question of the expansion of slavery had pretty much been, Settled, at least uh, bottled up, or at least swept under the rug for a while. But then, when the United States acquired all this new territory out west, it just opened it up. So the only I mean, elephant... I mean, we
2: doubled in size, basically. The, the
1: well, country... not quite doubled, but yeah, but yeah, and and the the thing about it is, and I always teach my students when when we talk about the Missouri Compromise, you look at the line. You know, it, it, I'm sure our listeners know that the main feature of the Missouri Compromise was that. Basically, you drew an invisible line across the United States, and everything north of that was going to be closed to slavery, and everything south of it was going to be open to slavery, but uh, the thing about it is, is that the southern part of that, the pro-slavery part of that was tiny Mm -hmm. at the time, because the United States did not own Texas, and they did not own the modern-day Southwest U.S., California, New Mexico, Arizona, and those areas, and so... I imagine, well, I don't imagine, I know that the Southerners weren't completely happy with that arrangement, and for the longest time, they wanted to gain the territory. They started talking about manifest destiny, and it's our God-given right to expand all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And so once they achieved that goal, then they wanted to be able to take their slaves. They felt like they were going to be outnumbered eventually. If, again, if you look at the the lands north of the Missouri Compromise Line, which is the northern part of the old uh, Louisiana Purchase, I always ask my students, how many states could you make out of that, assuming an average size state, like let's say the size of a Tennessee or a, you know, an Illinois or something. You could make eight to 10 states probably. But if you look at the southern part of the Missouri Compromise, uh, you could only make probably two. And so they were chomping at the bit to get these new southwestern lands, and they were not going to be told they could not take their slaves out there.
2: Yeah. So so it kind of made the situation a uh... There was, you know, there's there's often talk these days about oh well uh, the Civil War was a failure of compromise. But in sense it, the compromise was over. There was, the the positions just began to ossify and and extre- extremize and go towards the
1: extremes. Exactly because you know the Southern economy was completely uh, tied up in the cotton uh, mm-hmm. growing of cotton and the selling of cotton and everything and and. Uh, cotton tends to wear out the soil over time and you have to move, you have to get more land in order for the cotton empire to continue. So they, people were actually talking about, some, some Southerners wanted to take all of Mexico. And uh, Southerners, you, you know about the filibusters, of course, there were individuals, yeah. individuals, U.S. citizens that were trying to go down and start their own countries in Latin America or places like Cuba, things like that. So the South knew it had to expand if slavery stayed bottled up in the states of the South, the old Southeast that later became the Confederacy, it was going to shrivel and die. Well, you know what I find interesting about this
0: story, though, is that it's one of the, and one of the things we, you know, we've talked about in episodes like this, it always makes, the question I ask here is, what, you know, it's the hairy turtle of question. What would have happened if instead of just quietly, gracefully stepping down, Uh, you know, if Houston had said, you know what, send 50,000 troops, and let's turn, let's, let's put, you know, put martial law into effect, and let's just stop this secession right here, and you lose all of the resources and support that Texas provided to the South during the Civil War, and you step in and you decisively sort of shut it down before it gets too bad. Was there enough military power to hold Texas and put pressure on the South? Uh, I guess would be the one question. And would it have even worked? Or would it have just made things, would it have just poured gasoline on the fire?
1: Oh, you know, that's a great question. My, It's it's hard to tell because um, part <laughs> of me wants to say, well, yes, that would have made all the difference in the world if Sam Houston had become a major general and had had 50,000 federal mm-hmm. troops. but. You know, it's one thing to promise 50,000 federal troops, and it's another thing to actually raise yep. the troops, equip the troops, send the troops down there. You know, you had Confederate ships, not very many, but you had some that were uh, just dying to pick off federal ships, blockade runners I, could have been armed. What do you think?
2: I don't think the Federal Army in J- J- January of 1861 had 50,000 men in the first Oh, no, place. absolutely
1: not. No, I, I think— but, yeah, <laughs> but on.
2: even if they did, even if they did, I, my my thought on that was always that basically the Civil War would have looked like, I mean, the, sorry, Texas in the Civil War, if that happened, would have looked like Georgia or Virginia. It would have, it would have devastated. Uh, I mean, we would had we would have had these battles all through eastern Texas, from Houston all the way Houston all the way up to Nacogdoches and all the way out to Austin. It mm-hmm. would have been bloody a bloody war, you know. It, texas only had a few hundred thousand people in the whole state um you know assuming that you know enough of the men in you know the german settlements and then the northern settlements would kind of stand up with houston maybe there there might have been a more fighting chance but it would have been ugly i i i just don't think that is ever in houston's character to to really take that stand um
1: no, Houston would have never done it himself. Now, if you had had somebody with a different temperament, somebody like an E.J. Davis, uh, a Texan who actually does end up joining the Union Army and becoming yeah. a general. But Davis was a nobody at the time. Nobody knew who he was. So right. there was no chance if they were going to pick somebody, they were going to pick somebody real famous. And you got to also remember that Sam Houston was almost 70 years old, and he's going to die two years after the war starts. Yeah. So I don't know that Houston, even had he— even if he had had the predisposition to want to do this or the desire he i don't think he would have had the energy yeah. I,
2: I and i so i just think it's 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 very clear that after after Kansas Nebraska it is a foregone conclusion that something some spark will cause the secession crisis to happen that the, some spark will cause the south to leave the union because they've been threatening it south carolina has been threatening it since the 1830s um, with the nullification, but the the big question is how many states will go and what what will be the spark. But I think it's a remarkable that you know Houston took this stand of looking forward and saying, "Hey, if this happens, this will be the worst thing to happen to this country. This will be the worst thing that will happen to anyone." And you know we can talk about the slavery issue all we want, but the bottom line is from just a political and a and a and a realistic, real politic perspective, he understood that that a secession would equal war, and war would equal des- destruction for the South. That this that there was no way the South could win, no matter what level of fighting spirit or enthusiasm that the people had. That the North. The North would be slow to get going. That's that's the other thing is that he argued the North would be slow to get going. But once they got going, there would be no stopping them. There would be no preventing them from from this this course of action. Absolutely.
3: Um. Yeah. And I mean, I was going to say I I had never heard um, that he was offered that that was even something that was offered. It's mm-hmm. like, hey, we'll we'll fight to keep you in power. You know. That, that, yeah. And, and the fact that he turned it down is like, you know, he's like, at all costs, he was trying to avoid um, pain and damage to his beloved Texas.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So there's there's another interesting statement that Houston made. I, and we've talked about in, in our previous episode of Political Myths of Texas and and of the Civil War, you know, there's a big discussion about – In our national dialogue about why, you know, why did the South secede? What caused the Civil War? That that debate in 2017 is still going on, you know. And I've made a statement, a very clear, unequivocal statement that secession was caused by slavery, uh, not by states' rights. Now, the interesting thing is that in Houston's speech, uh, let me find where he said it. He said, "I believe with you in the doctrine of states' rights. This is one of the only." One of the only, you know, late 1860, early 1861, during the secession crisis, that I've seen any political leader in the South say the word states' rights. Um, But it's being spoken by a person arguing against secession. That's the one thing.
0: Right, yeah. Yeah. Well, let me just throw out one other thing here. And, and, you know, at the opening of this, Sean, I know you said, like, we did an overview of the Civil War. We talked about it. And we did. It was an early episode. But I just want to highlight for listeners that, you know, one of the founding principles of this show, when we sort of ask each of us what we cared about, one of the biggest things Sean said very early on was, I want there to be a real integrity to the history we talk about and make sure that, Mm -hmm. you know, when we tackle a major topic, that were really giving it thought. And uh, Sean did a ton of research when we did our original Civil War episode, looked at a lot of firsthand documents, original stuff, and really dug in to answer that question of, you know, wh- what is states' rights? What What is a state's right other than to own a person as property? And, right. and that was really the conclusion was that almost everything that you'd found was written and said that this, this is very clearly – um, about that dreaded institution,
2: right? Exactly. And Houston was not a uh, was not an abolitionist. He did. So we want to. We don't want to paint Houston in this this, you know, this image of yeah. that he's, he himself, he's the equivalent of Abraham Lincoln. You know, he, he is, owned slaves himself. Yeah, so. he <laughs> owned slaves. He didn't. He I, I I my thought about Houston, and I've never seen anything to say this one way or the other. But my thought about Houston would be that he would lean towards if, if it means keeping slavery, if it means keeping the union in place, then he would sacrifice slavery. If it means saving Texas, he would sacrifice slavery. But he never really said anything about that. So I don't really have anything to go on that. But the other the other statement is, so you're right, Mike, that, that the state's rights is slavery, ultimately. Um, but the interesting thing is that the next statement that he makes after he uses the word state's rights is, he says, the North is determined to preserve this union. So James Lowen, historian James Lowen, who wrote Lies Across America and Lies My Teacher Told Me, uh, is a famous, famous and sometimes infamous historian for revising our view on the past has said, you know, it's, he's made it very clear. His position is the South seceded because of slavery. The North, though, went to war not for slavery. They went to war to preserve the Union. And I think Houston Mm -hmm. saw that, that the North, slavery was not part of the North's Primary determination of going to war and going to going to the, into this fight, it was to restore and preserve the Union. The other thing, though, is that his response to Reagan, uh, to uh, to John Reagan, who later became Postmaster General of the Confederacy, um, his response to him when he came to talk to when Reagan came to talk to him was to say, "Our people are going to war to perpetuate slavery." That is a direct quote from one of the leaders of the South, a the slaveholder saying our people are going to war to perpetuate slavery. I've never seen a statement that clear as well in favor of the argument the Civil War was ultimately
1: about slavery. Yeah, Yeah, I've seen several statements like that. If you look at every single state – uh, mm-hmm. that seceded, they always issued a document. That's the American way, right? We've got to issue a paper. Right.
2: Yeah, the Declaration <laughs> and, of Causes.
1: The yeah. Declaration of Causes, and every single one of them explicitly mentions slavery. Uh, I always share with my students a statement by Alexander Stevens from Georgia, who became the vice yes. president of the Confederacy. Um, Alexander Stevens basically—I'm uh, going to have to paraphrase here. I don't have it in front of me, but he says that— uh, this is The Confederacy is the first nation founded on the great moral truth that the Negro is inferior to the white. And yes. uh, he also talks about we're, we're going to uh, defend slavery. So I always tell my students, if you want to know why somebody does something, what's the best way? And, of course, they say, well, ask the person themselves. Yeah. And so, yeah.
2: Well, the, the, the only complication is, is that when that person changes their statement four years later after they've lost – yeah, or or twenty years later or twenty 30, years later. Yeah, yeah after right. after they've lost to explain why they've lost. So it wasn't actually about those things we said it was about.
1: Well, and the but, whole states rights thing, if I may, the whole states rights thing, they were not the states' rights, and y'all already basically said this, but it's a state right is a it's a hollow shell. It's you want to have the right to do something else. There's always an issue behind it. And I always point out to my students that the South was not consistent on this. No. Because if you think about the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law, Uh the South wanted strong federal action. They wanted a federal law that would force citizens in the northern states to actively participate in the capture and the return of runaway slaves. So there, and and the the northern states were passing things called personal liberty laws, which were designed to frustrate the recapture of escaped slaves. And so you have the whole situation topsy-turvy. Here you have the northern states Act believing in states' rights, the rights to uh, disregard or at least to frustrate the federal uh, fugitive slave law, and then you have Southerners saying, "Well, we want strong action. We want the federal government needs to get in there, return our slaves." So,
2: right, right. Mm. But but it's a reverse yep. position on the expansion of slavery. Right. Uh, the federal government can't tell us what to do. Mm-hmm. But, hey, we we are we are in favor of the things that are important to us, exactly, and the way we want them done. So, and this is the this is the ultimate and probably most tragic example of this in our country's
1: history, as far as without politics. a doubt.
2: So, 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 what does it mean for Texas? Let's let's get into this a little bit. What does it mean? First of all, uh, under the Constitution at the time, and maybe you don't know the answer to this, but under the Constitution at the time, did really the the, 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 the secession convention really have any legal bearing or? bounds or was this just making things were they just making things up as they went?
1: I think they were making things up as they went. I mean I'm not an expert on the history of the Constitution. I know we've had several of them at least until 1876, but Mm -hmm. but you know it was just kind of let's just do what the other guys did. You know, let's do let's follow the lead of South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And I always I pick on South Carolina. I I love the state of South Carolina. I lived there for about a year and a half and it's beautiful and it's the people are really, really nice. But there was a quote going around at the time that said South Carolina is too big to be an independent republic. I mean, I'm sorry, it's too small to be an independent republic, but it's too big to be an insane asylum. Yeah, (laughs) because that was just the hotbed of Southern radicalism, fire eating, as they called it at the time. And secession fever. So uh, it's like, do we really want to follow their example? I mean, Texas prides themselves upon being different. From the South, we're not really part of the South. We're not really part of the West. We're just Texas, right? There's a quote, but, but at this time we were just following in lockstep with South Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi, and all those other Mm -hmm. states.
2: So was I I know the vault. The numbers of voters are small, but do we know if the other states, at least the initial, the initial six states, were they? Was the vote as close? Because it's it's actually fairly close. Uh, It's it's three to one, but. Was the vote as as close in the other states in favor of secession? It, it was, uh, it was not, similar. Not counting, like, not counting like Tennessee and and Virginia. Yeah,
1: I, in the first seven states that seceded, the Deep South, it was pretty similar or even more overwhelming. Okay. Uh, now, some of the Upper South states, Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Arkansas, and again, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but some of those were pretty close, okay. especially Virginia when you think about how the western part of the state – uh, had no desire to secede whatsoever from the Union. In fact, they end up seceding from Virginia itself and forming the state of West Virginia in 1863.
0: To bring it back to to the hypothetical, then, so instead of maintaining a federal control, let's say that Texas just sat out the war, and became an independent. Now, in my mind, I could see that there might be. I mean, there's enough people in Texas. You could say today, do you want to just be your own republic? And they'd say, okay, sure. Uh, where do I sign? But um, in reality, I, I just picture if this happened during the world that there was such overwhelming support that even if Texas had sat on the sidelines, that they would be a supply pipeline, that they would be, you know, uh, a a haven for Southern spies, Southern resources, that it would be yes. a safe zone, that would be. Um, and the other thing that that isn't talk that we talked about in the in the past this is that you know Texas in the Civil War. What we're about to embark on is that, uh, you know, there weren't really that many battles fought here. That we supplied, we 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 brought supplies, we brought people, we brought support. Uh, and Texas itself suffered because of the frontier. So now you had this border that was protected by federal troops, and, and and that's all gone. So if they were an independent nation, you know, what are some of the other pieces that you might see that would happen there?
1: I agree with you, Mike. I, I think um, if if Texas had been an independent republic, you still would have had thousands of young men from Texas run off to join the Confederacy. Uh, you might have had a few join the Union, not too many. Might have had a better situation on the frontier. I don't right. know that it would have gained a whole—I don't know that it would have really changed things a whole lot because, of as as you guys have mentioned, the war didn't really— have a tremendous impact on Texas when you compare it to say Tennessee or Virginia. Uh, I, I really don't think there would have been that big of a difference. I think uh, things that you know they probably would have eventually rejoined the U.S. as they did, maybe a little bit earlier than they had, but uh, it's just it's hard to say. I, I don't think that there was really any chance that that was ever going to happen. From, from because my... because Confederate, I'm sorry, Scott, because Confederate, uh, pro-Confederate sentiment, it was so strong in Texas. Yeah. You, so many of the people of Texas had immigrated uh, not all that long ago from the Deep South. Yeah, they had family
2: back home and back right. in Tennessee and
1: Virginia. And
2: it, it, it is a good, it is an interesting what if, because it's like, of all the states, Texas had some, some valid federalist concerns over you know the way the frontier was being defended and and it had a different perspective of of we had we did we were an independent republic now i I disagree with houston i think houston is painting a rosy picture that texas had prospered as a republic because they actually were deep 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 in debt and, and 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 constantly in danger of being overrun by mexico but um, at the same time, you know, we we remember the Republic of Texas fondly today, so I don't see why they would uh-huh. remember it fondly then. Um, I think that's the that's the, the the big question is, is does it really matter? You know, Texas had a long border with Mexico, so it was easier to trade. It was easier to send goods from Austin or, or really from San Antonio or Houston to uh, Monterey than it was to send them to. Uh, Little Rock, or to Memphis, or which was overrun by the Union, or to mm-hmm. or to or to Atlanta. So, um, I guess that that's the big question I've always had, though, is that why why does why does Texas need to join the Confederacy? Why do any of these states need to form an, another country just to just to because of what they're seceding for? And I think the ultimate answer is they were bound together by slavery, and they were going to bound, mm-hmm. be bound together to protect each other and to support each other. I think Texas just is the, is the, is the unique case of – Texas is the only state of the Confederacy that really could say, well, the Confederacy lost the war, but Texas didn't because in a lot of ways it, it really wasn't – it was only barely touched or singed by the war. Well, I think Mm -hmm. we've talked about this thing too. Like there's,
0: and I'll say this for our listeners who aren't in Texas or of Texas, but who listen, and I know you're out there, so thank you. But that you know, as I explained it to somebody, was that you know, the Texas is not in the South, and it is not in the Southwest, and it is not Mexico, and it is not Oklahoma. It is, it's, is not a Midwest. It is just Texas. It's just its own thing, and. Despite the hardships, the craziness, all the weird stuff that happened, even as part of the Confederacy, Texas still maintained its integrity of Texas in a strange Mm -hmm. way. And and certainly when we look at the post-Civil War breakdown, it happens that way. But just around this kind of idea of, you know, it's funny, it's like Houston won the election. Why? Well, because Ronalds didn't get the job done. Like, look, yeah. you know, I, maybe I don't agree with everything Houston says, but he, the trains run on time and the lights are going to stay on. I mean, the electricity bill is going to get paid, and you know we're going to have food on the table at night yeah. because yeah. Houston's a guy that got things done, and he is, you know, and and when we went through all of and you know James when we when we went through all of the early the the runaway scrape and all of those sort of pieces, uh-huh. you know, Houston is portrayed by history as you know the stern um, father with the reluctant and disobedient children that I will yeah. drag you <laughs> kicking and screaming into independence and glory. If yes. you would, if you would just sit down and shut up and listen to me for more than two minutes and I have a temper <laughs> tantrum, I will take you to the promised lands. And yet again, we see Houston is the lone voice of reason, not asking for anything exceptional except for a basic compromise of let's sit this one out. Or let's, you know, let's let's let cooler heads prevail or I can see what's coming. And it's yeah. a, it really does feel like, you know, parents like don't jump on the couch because if you fall off the couch, you're going to hurt yourself. And then they fall off the couch and you hurt yourself. And you're like, I told you, you're going <laughs> to fall off the couch, hurt yourself. So yeah. I can't teach you, you know, it like Texans have this rep. There's I think it's probably with part of the reputation we have as Texans for being these stiff necked, you know, difficult. Uh, stubborn people who are highly idealistic and passionate, and even said like, you know, these Northerners—they're not like you and me. They're—they're they're not so hot-blooded and quick to yeah. anger. But once they get moving, they're going to roll
2: over us because you better
1: bar—you better that door, son. Well, this is <laughs> well, a- Go
2: ahead, John. The other—the other thing is that you know, the, the one thing about Houston is yes, he was a Texan, but he was originally from Tennessee, he was actually born in Virginia, but he was <laughs> raised in Tennessee. So, you know, he was. In a sense, he was wrong about what would happen in Texas, because Texas really, Texas didn't have the the level of there was no there was no march to the sea in Texas. They, the right. every really invasion of Texas was defeated pretty much. There was no there was no uh, you know scraping of of the of the uh, raising of the valley the Shindo Valley in Texas. Mm-hmm. But he was right about what happened in, in, in the South, in, in the rest, in the main theaters of the war, in Mississippi and in, uh, in, Mississippi, you know, in Louisiana and, and in Georgia. But the interesting thing, we talked about this on our episode on the Reconstruction in Texas. In a lot of ways, the, the worst thing to happen in Texas was not in the Civil War itself. The worst violence in Texas was in those years of Reconstruction following as— as right. politically, those who were in, in favor of redeeming Texas and coming back in the Union, those who had supported the Union during the war, and those who were irredeemed Confederates had—and, and of course, the African Americans in Texas had ran, atrocious bloodshed for a good decade—the the, the war— after the war was in many ways for Texas and Mike, you said it in a previous episode was in many ways far worse than the war in
1: Texas. Absolutely. Oh yeah. Yes, definitely.
2: Yeah. So, so this gets us into the civil war now. So the, the reason Texas seceded was because it didn't listen to Sam Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the, that's the only case of the civil war where you can say, why did this, why did the civil war happen? Because Texas didn't listen to Sam Houston. Um, Sam is always right. You got to listen is. to him, man. I mean, look, Sam if you're
1: if you're a
0: betting man, and he yeah. says, you know, put it all Don't on black, that. you better yeah. put it all on black and let it ride, because Sam, he's yeah. going to be right
2: at the roulette table. He's right in everything else. So, so going forward, we're going to have a couple of, we're going to have some more episodes we're going to cover. They're not going to be sequential. We're going to come back and in a, in a couple of weeks, and probably have an, and have another episode uh, uh, and
1: uh, several other episodes as we go forward into and, and into the new year. We're going to talk next about the uh, New Mexico campaign, where a bunch of Texans decided, well, let's just go add New Mexico to Texas. Why not? We'll make it Confederate by force. Yeah, uh, and we'll talk about and see how that went um, in Glorieta, New Mexico and Valverde. And we're going to talk about some other uh, battles. That happened in Texas that you guys have not discussed. And uh, one thing I'm excited about is we're going to talk about E.J. Davis, who is I've touched on him earlier. He was a pro-union man who ended up leaving Texas. He was obviously from Texas, but he left the state and joined the Union Army, rose to the rank of general, and he would become the first governor of uh, of texas after the civil war at least one of the first i think they had kind of an interim for a while if i remember Mm -hmm. correctly but he was the first reconstruction governor of texas and the first and only republican governor of texas until bill clements became governor i think it was 1979 yeah and uh very interesting fellow. I wrote a paper on him when I was in uh, grad school. Took a Texas history course, and he was much maligned. He was called a carpetbagger and a corrupt Republican, and all this. But he actually did a pretty darn good job when he was governor. But he just wasn't going to be able to stay very long because when the state went back to Democratic rule, uh, you didn't want to admit that you were a Republican. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a good way to yeah. it's a good way to get
2: killed. Yeah, so we're, we're going to be unpacking a number of things, and, and I'm excited about this. The Civil War is always a favorite subject. It's very much in the news these days, and we're going to be kind of covering some things that don't get all the play that you see uh, uh, in the state, in the national news. So this is, uh, is going to be exciting. That wraps things up for today.
0: You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd like to thank Professor James Early for joining us in this fascinating discussion about Texas, Old Sam and the Civil War. And we're looking forward to having more talks in the future. You can find James regularly posting on the American History Fanatics Facebook group, which is a lively place for discussion and debate. And we'll post a link in the show notes. We'd love to hear from you. So why don't you like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or get yourself to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm at Max Sean with two N's. (laughs) And I am Scotticus. Do you love this show? Do you love Texas? Well, don't hide your lamp under a bushel. Get out there and tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes because that really helps us out to find new listeners just like you. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.